0: with two fine yarns from our wonderful city. These recommended listening conditions should only be undertaken under guidance from your friendly neighbourhood guild overseer. Ah, I see you there, Larry. Get back to work now. Ha, 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 We have a call out to the community before our first story. This is a missing persons notice for a man by the name of Clarence Tyndall. He was a fine stock brown hair, blue eyes, and was in his early 40s. Mr. Tyndall has a wife and two children who depended on his wage packet as a coach driver. He frequently carried passengers along the road to the Delta 6 site, but last week he failed to return home. If you have seen Mr. Tyndall, then please report your information to his family. They live on Habersham Corner. Now for our first story of the day. It's a long one, so strap yourselves in for a journey on the dead train.
1: Dead Train. Sonia rode hard, lashing her horse's flanks with her crop. Though Rasputina was her charge and she was finally a step ahead of her, she was eager for a report from Leviticus on the status of the Massimune. The head of her, Ridley Station, rose into view. Pulling on the reins, Sonya's steed slowed, and she lifted her hand to her mouth, calling out with a loud, shrill bird call. Beside the trail, Brush parted silently as her lieutenant, Samail emerged. She swung down from the saddle. Samail, report. The witch, Rasputina, is riding out from Hollow Marsh. Without doubt, she has met with Ramos there. She is accompanied by two Union men. That's all we need to have Ramos get his hands on this woman. If our research is correct, and this woman is in league with some old power, this could get out of hand with Arcanus supporting her. It's likely that she also acquired a soul stone at Hollow Marsh. Then this is where we get her. We can't let her become proficient in its use, Sonia said as she tied her horse to a nearby tree. She climbed quickly atop a large rock to look down at the station below. How far out are they? I expect we have twenty minutes or so. Sonia squinted as she surveyed the distant platform. "'Oh, hell. Are those Death Marshals down there? What are they doing there? "'Raise justice on Erethrovox. Those ghouls will spook our quarry.'" Down on the platform, the Marshals were readying a trap of their own, the Judge outlining a plan to capture Seamus in a crossfire. Civilian casualties are to be expected,' he told them. "'After his declaration of war downtown, we know he's capable of anything. "'The Governor wants him captured or killed, by any means.'" One of the marshals, a towering figure with only one good eye, spoke up. Is it just us, or is justice coming for him? The judge nodded. The jury and executioner are on the other side of the city, but justice will be here soon. We're supposed to pin him down until he gets here, but I reckon we can take him. As the judge spoke, the platform became crowded with miners and other laborers returning to the city and their families. They kept a wide berth from the death marshals. Arriving with the miners, Rasputina and two union organisers mounted the platform. Their goal was a small way station to purchase supplies for a journey into the swamp. Before long, the train appeared around a hill and slowed into the station, hissing and steaming. Rasputina, looking over her shoulder at the sound of the engine's whistle, caught sight of the marshals. Gild. Reaching into her coat, she drew out the milky white soulstone which Ramos had given her. She lifted her eyes to the sky. December! The storm that was her only trustworthy companion since coming to Malifaux had always needed time to build. To summon winds and snow that she might wield against her enemies. Not today. The soulstone in her grip flared with light as a spark of lightning tore open the sky. Instantly an angry vortex churned above, and a peal of thunder rocked the station. Frigid winds blew along through the crowd. Men pouring out of the cars to seek shelter in the station only added to the chaos. And Rasputina was content to hide in the morass of miners and keep an eye on whatever the guild were up to. All the cars emptied save for one. Their coats swirling about their legs, wide-brim hats held tight to their heads. The death marshals gathered along the length of this car, guns drawn. The judge stepped forward. Seamus, we know you're in there. Come out with your hands up and you can see clemency from the governor, the judge shouted. There was no response. The wind grew and a heavy snow fell from the sky. At my signal turn that carriage into kindling, the judge raised an arm. A bright green flash blew the windows out of the car, showering the marshals with a rain of broken glass. That green flash heralded a wave of energy that washed over the platform, sending the marshals reeling. The stone of the platform smoked in its wake but the guild's protective wards kept the judge and his men safe. The wave of energy was not the only thing loosed by the green flash. The moment the windows had blown out, the miners who had been travelling in the carriage climbed out the shattered frames and lurched at the death marshals. Every one of them bore a mortal wound, their fresh corpses reanimated by shameless forbidden lore. The marshals downed several of them with pinpoint headshots, but there were too many, and they were too close, and in moments every death marshal was fighting for his life. First into the thick of things was the judge, leaping forward to take the fight to his undead assailants. His aim was unerring as he alternated between gun and blade, his long sabre splitting a skull from crown to collarbone moments before a point-blank shot took the face off another. Above the din of battle, a single shot sounded out with an ear-splitting bang. It struck the judge in the chest, throwing him several meters through the air. When he landed, his body lay still on the scorched platform. Seamus descended the steps of the train car. "'skipping down and back up the steps like a ringmaster "'while doffing his enormous hat to an imaginary crowd. "'Thank you. Thank you,' he crowed. "'Smoke from the barrel of his oversized pistol "'wrapped him in a demonic haze. "'Molly, girl!' he shouted over his shoulder. "'Come along. Bring Philip with you. "'But watch he doesn't sneak a look up your dress. "'He's quite the cat, that one.' "'There was a wet, sickly cough in response, "'and Molly stuck her head out the doorway, "'looking up into the sky.' He's here, Seamus! He's here! Seamus rolled his eyes, completely misunderstanding her, and clamped his hat to his head as he looked up into the stormy sky. I know, Pudding. I just told you to bring him. No need to get so excited. The platform was empty of passengers. Those who had not been driven away by the sudden storm had turned and ran when the zombies had poured out of the train car. The marshals remained, struggling against the resilient zombie miners. Beyond them, Seamus saw Rasputina. She took a step toward him and raised a hand. You! Oh, yes, it's me! Not what you saw last time, did you? Seamus winked. You look like you could use a little warming up, sure. No, I can always spare the time for the ladies. We've got all the hot Sheamus here you can handle, Frosty. Rasputina scowled in disgust and grabbed hold of the wind in her outstretched hand. Lashing out, she directed a white cannon blast toward Seamus. The solid lump of ice and snow was almost on him when he reached beneath his coat and whipped out a long arcane device. It looked like an industrial welding torch connected to a tank of compressed gas on Seamus' hip. Mounted in front of the nozzle, however, was the Gorgon's tear. Seamus covered his face with one arm and squeezed the device's trigger. A billowing green flame engulfed the frozen meteor and filled the air with rapidly cooling steam. Did you see that, Molly Girl? Seamus whooped, and then waved the torch at Rasputina. Oh no, I'm ready for you this time. Again Seamus pulled the trigger, sending a billowing surge of flame roaring toward Rasputina. A blast of wind caught hold of the flame and sent it curving off to the side, where it burst against the walls of the station, setting them instantly alight. A short distance away, Sonia and Samael watched the chaos playing out on the platform below. Sonia watched in awe as a giant ice golem lifted a train car and threw it at Seamus. A concentrated spray from his flamethrower cut the airborne car in half in a shower of molten iron, and both sizzling halves landed on either side of a hopping, hollering Sheamus. Sonia shook her head. Maybe there's something to be said for Forgotten Lore if it can make wonderful toys like that. Where does he get them? Beside her, Samael held a small box with a wire grill on one side against his ear. Amidst its buzzing, Lady Justice's voice could be heard. Samael hemmed twice, and then tapped a wrapped Sonia Crid on the shoulder. Justice is to engage. Sonia frowned and reached out to take the Ethervox device. Is she crazy? Give me that. Sonia spoke into the Ethervox. Are you crazy? They're knocking lumps off each other down there. Pull the judge and his marshals back. Let the dust settle and we pick off whoever's still standing. Lady Justice's voice crackled from the device, her anger palpable. The judge is down. The marshals are overwhelmed. Those two criminals will beat on each other until one of them gets hurt. They are in it for themselves, and they have no reason to fight to the end. They'll disengage, and then they'll both escape. James murdered that whole train car full of laborers. Damn it. Samil and I are riding down now, Sonya spit into the Ethervox. Tossing the electric device to Samail she mounted up. As Samail mounted his own ride, she drew the enormous blade she wore on her back. Samail checked his pistol, tapping around on his hat for good luck before chambering it. What's the plan? Helifano Helifano She shrugged before goading her horse on its flank with the flat of her blade. They thundered down the hill towards Ridley Station. From the burning wreckage of the station, a lone figure strode boldly through the flames. Her shape was cast in silhouette by the inferno behind her, long-legged and lithe, with a great wave of hair streaming behind her in the draft from the fires and a sword clasped behind her back in both hands. Approaching the remnants of her marshals and the undead they struggled with, she whispered a soft, Peace, and the unnatural creatures fell lifeless to the ground. Lady Justice rallied her death marshals to her side. Pointing her blade across the platform, she gestured toward Seamus. Leave the witch to Sonya, but Seamus is mine. Seamus was in a bind. His device had been disabled in the struggle and would no longer conjure the green flame that had given him the advantage. He had been forced to take cover behind the wreck of one of the train cars. Wrenching the green gem from the gadget, he handed it off to Molly. Here, girl. Hold this. Molly stood with Philip's head cradled in her arms. Seamus, she's there, she croaked with a gurgle of blood. Rasputina stood only a few yards away through a tangle of twisted metal. Her hand held a miniature cyclone of whirling snow at her side, ready to be loosed at her enemy. Seamus knelt and rummaged through his bag. With a cry, he jerked what looked like a tin can from his bag of tools. He bit a pin in the top and tugged it loose the grenade instantly issuing a burst of smoke to conceal him from his enemy. Here, have a bit of your own medicine. Rasputina loosed her swirl of wind, and with a quick gust, she swept away the concealing smoke to reveal a dumbfounded Seamus looking up at her with wide eyes. Oh, Royce, the wind. Rasputina sneered, opened her hand. Another swirl of wind answered her summons, and she grabbed hold of it, ready to let fly at Seamus. Then the wind cleared the last of the smoke, and she noticed Sonia. Sonia's sword swept through the air above her head, and with a ferocious cry she brought it down upon the platform with a mighty stroke. The sword bit deep, and a pillar of fire shot up like a geezer. The fiery column shot forward, blasting the train wreckage aside, engulfing Rasputina in a sudden inferno. Burn! On the opposite platform, Lady Justice seized her moment. Her death marshals were in place and, for once, the confounded snow had cleared long enough to let them see Seamus and his undead companion. As she gave the order to fire, Seamus grabbed onto Molly's sleeve and dove with her off a platform to avoid Sonya's pillar of flame, and also just in time to avoid the gunfire. Peeking over the edge of the platform, Seamus saw his nemesis pacing forward and squeezed off a snapshot from his flintlock pistol. Without breaking her stride, Justice swatted the round from the air like nothing more than a pesky insect. Seamus ducked back into cover and looked at Molly in alarm. Might be in a pickle here, old girl. Just might. The pillar of fire that consumed Rasputina shredded away to sparks before a snap of frigid wind. Emerging from the inferno with her clothes smoldering but otherwise unharmed, Rasputina turned to run. She had made it as far as the blood-soaked scene of the fight with the zombies, when one of the bodies staggered unsteadily to its feet, clutching its shoulder. It was the judge, rapidly losing blood from the wound Seamus had given him. He had not lost his wits, however, and as Rasputina tried to run past, he barged into her. He fell and she stumbled, slipped, and nearly went down. The judge's efforts gave Samael the time he needed. He had raced forward as soon as the flame pillar blew apart, and now threw something metallic at Rasputina, a long chain rattling behind it. With a sound that made even Seamus wince, the thrown bear trap snapped shut on her leg, and Rasputina fell to the blood slick platform, gasping in pain. She tried to rise, but Samael looped the chain around one arm and hauled her off balance. With another sharp cry of pain, she fell heavily, cursing. Samael began reeling her in, arm length by arm length, while she gritted her teeth, face whiter than ever, hatred for him and all the guilt burning from her eyes. Samael hauled in the final length of chain and unclipped a set of handcuffs. Consider yourself under arrest. Justice, the witch is down. Sonia called out. Cover me, Justice snapped, and her marshals answered her order with another volley of fire. Seamus ducked behind the platform again and rifled through his bag for another item that might save him. He grabbed the first thing that came to hand just as Lady Justice's booted feet touched down in front of him. With a sinking heart, he realized he was holding Molly's eyeliner. That's kind of endearing, Molly, but I don't think you need this anymore, he said. With a manic grin, he quickly drew a curly moustache on himself, then pointed towards the burning station building. He went that way. Lady Justice's face was without emotion. With her eyes bound, she seemed like an automaton as she thrust out her sword and pierced him through the shoulder, pinning him to the platform. Jameis gasped wordlessly in shock. He grabbed the blade but only succeeded in slicing his fingers to the bone. While he struggled, Sonia and Samael joined Justice. Samael produced Philip Tumour's journal, which he had recovered from Rasputina. Her destination was the ruins, Samael said as he crouched beside Seamus. Was that where you were headed, Seamus? Seamus' laugh was choked off as he grimaced at the pain, but he forced out a reply through gritted teeth. We have a summer home there, my boy. We go now, Sonia said, lighting a cigarette from a burning scrap of train wreckage. We cannot afford to assume that only these two are interested in Kythera. Others might be headed there now. We must secure the place before anyone else can unearth whatever lies there. Ridiculous, said Justice with a wave of her hand. Incarcerating these two safely is our primary goal, and you would risk undoing that. Your interest in these ruins lies beyond your duties as an officer of the guild, Sonia. Who'd have thought it? rasped Seamus. Lady Justice blindly following orders. There's a headline for you, Molly. The former reporter stumbled forward, lifting her hollow, haunting eyes to Sonya and Lady Justice. The power shameless sort of Kythera can serve you as well. It is a vault of dark power, but it has the power to banish undeath from this world forever. She coughed and spat up a mouthful of blood. Mistresses, I plead. Let me die. You can end this plague forever, at Kythera. Charming creature, said Sonya icily she frowned. Why are you not destroying the zombie, Justice? A look of amazement crossed her face as she looked from Lady Justice to Molly and back again. Talk about ridiculous. Me you ignore, but you're seriously listening to her? She wrote a society column. She called you the least popular party guest since Typhoid, or words to that effect, and now she's suddenly an authority on Undeath? Justice put her boot on Seamus' chest and hauled out her sword oblivious to his howl of pain. Manacles for the three of them. A gag for this worm unless he holds his tongue. We ride for Carthera. Sonia shook her head as Justice walked away, and ground her cigarette out on the cold dirt. I am so glad we decided that. Holding his wounded shoulder, Seamus slowly toppled over and rolled onto his back with a grunt, looking up at Molly. Girls, a wonder. Ramus peered through a looking-glass of his own design watching the events that consumed Ridley Station. He lifted the Ethervox unit. Joss? Prime the Leviathan.
0: Now for a message from our sponsors. Come on down to Soul Soulstones, where, no matter the size of your cash, we will have the Soulstone for you. At Soul Soulstones, we pride ourselves in the quality of our hand-picked stones, and we will help you find the one that suits you. We also provide a preventative damage lifetime guarantee on all of our stock. You will positively flip for our Soulstones or your money back. Our low-pressure sales staff will keep you off the defensive, as you select the Soulstone to suit your purpose, you can visit Soul Soulstones next to the smoking crater that was the Guild Morgue. And now for our second story, the Old World.
1: The Old World. With their carriage destroyed and the coachman dead, Victoria, Alice, and the doppelganger continued their journey on horseback. Victoria and Alice shared a horse, while the doppelganger had her hands tied to the pommel of her own saddle. Victoria was still unsure of the creature's intentions, so Alice kept her revolver across her lap, just in case. Gently coaxing her horse ahead, Victoria pushed through the brush and the trio came upon a shallow recess in the bluff wall artfully concealed from casual discovery by trailing vines and bushes. Provisions were stored here. Lanterns, clothes, dry food, and a long canoe. Victoria was not surprised to see that there were three changes of clothes and three pairs of boots. Her client had told her where to find these provisions, and the old woman seemed unnaturally sure of the future. We start out across the swamp from here. According to my client's notes, it shouldn't be much farther, Victoria said. Alice dismounted and Victoria followed. As Victoria unsaddled her horse and stowed their gear in the canoe, Alice helped the doppelganger off the horse. There was little talk as the three prepared the boat. During the ride, Victoria had developed a certain fondness for her mysterious lookalike. She had made no attempt to attack or escape, and had bombarded Victoria with questions that were almost childlike in their directness and boundless curiosity. What was Victoria's full name? Where did she come from? What did she like to eat? drink. Would the doppelganger like the same things? If the doppelganger thought of a joke, would Victoria know the punchline? It turned out the answer to that was almost always yes, and that the doppelganger's sense of humour was every bit as risque as Victoria's. Alice had had to put her hands over her ears more than once. They tried simple guessing games, and although Alice had done as well as might be expected, the two Victorias seemed to have an unearthly connection. There was a lack of guile and openness about this other her, that made for a refreshing change, Victoria thought, and wondered about what her life might have been like, what she might have been like, if things had worked out differently for her back in Frisco. This strange mirror image might be her window to the might-have-been, although she still thought better of untying her. They geared up for the trek across the swamp. After a short break to rest and eat, the canoe was loaded with the last of the supplies, and they set out. Using a long pole, Victoria pushed the canoe through the water, Alice at the prow and the doppelganger, hands still bound, between them. A canopy of gnarled trees grew up out of the fetid swamp. The tree trunks were a tangled knot of boles and buttresses that loomed out the murky waters like fossilized kraken. Some of the trees were large enough that the canoe could pass through the tangle of roots and beneath the tree itself. Eventually they reached a clearing in the swamp, and the night sky opened up. It was uncharacteristically clear and filled with stars. Victoria was reminded of the carving the old woman had drawn on the tabletop back at the Key and gong. Where we are from, Victoria said as she drove the canoe onward. People see heroes and heroines in the stars. What do your people see up there? The doppelganger looked to the sky, a far-off look in her eyes. The death of this world. A story to frighten our tots and worry the old. When decay and madness were invited in, and ruin came with them. Both Alice and Victoria gazed up. The doppelganger pointed as she spoke. That one's the hourglass. Makes her sound almost appealing, although she's anything but. The maw. When I was young, I would have nightmares about that one. I don't know what it is like on the other side of the breach, although maybe one day I'll take a look. But I imagine you have lots of clever people there. You must, I suppose, to do all the things your kind have done. But clever people can be blinded by themselves. They get so impressed with their own cleverness, they imagine they can solve any problem, rise to any challenge. There was a time when this world was full of clever people, too. They were masters of magic and technology. They brought about an age without sickness or suffering. They found ways to live without end. And some of them grew bored with their long lives. And being clever, they found dangerous ways to waste their time. But what was a thrilling dip into dark waters for some became a headlong, breathless plunge for a few. They found deep within themselves the worst perversions and most terrible desires, and knowing no limits, they turned these things outward on their fellows and reveled in the misery they caused. They subjected the people of this world to cruel experiments, and depravity and decay, illness and pain abounded once again. So powerful did these individuals become that they seemed to be gods, and the people of this world had no defense against them. Great machines of war were leveled against them, and great armies were amassed, but no force could stand against their mastery of the arcane or the potency of their science. The machines of war were swept aside like children's toys, and entire armies were slaughtered in the blink of an eye. The swamp was silent as the creatures spoke, as above the canoe the stars slowly turned. The desperate people of this world exhausted every available force, combating the growing tyranny of the cabal. With nothing left of them, they began to look beyond the boundaries of this world, into the vastness of the night sky, and through the veil that divides this world from others. It was there that they found a hope for salvation. Or so they thought. The survivors built a great machine. This machine was a doorway between this existence and another. It was a breach in the great barrier between worlds. But this was not like the breach into your world. This one opened into the realm of death itself. What the survivors had discovered was that death was not simply our term for the natural end of all things. Death was real. Death existed in the same way that light and energy exist. The reason living things die is not some benign circle of life, but because death is a force that is woven into the fabric of reality. It has a sense, a purpose. It is drawn to life, and there is no stopping it. When the survivors opened the breach... Death itself was loosed on the world. It destroyed the tyrants one by one, yes. But it was a cancer that infected the whole of the world and kept on growing. The breach between this world and that one couldn't be repaired. It brought madness and corruption, transforming this land into what you see today. For the people that survived, their minds became poisoned, and they became all but extinct. Only those who embraced the madness growing inside them managed to survive. They became the monsters they sought to destroy, Victoria said, the doppelganger sighed. Worse, some of those old tyrants still clung to existence, living on as disembodied specters. Though their bodies have been destroyed, some manage to linger on, trapped in a nether existence from which they yearn to escape. Their powers are weak, and their influence is subtle, but it is all around us. And none more so than here. We have arrived, Victoria whispered, with a certainty she knew came direct from her twin. Alice stood and pointed out across the dim water. Rising above the knot of trees before them were seven crooked spires that clutched at the sky like a clawed hand. There! That must be it! Philip Toomers had named this place Kythera. None of these three knew that name. To them it was a temple dedicated to desperation a machine that produced the very substance of death. As they approached, the jagged limbs loomed higher and higher above them. The distance was deceptive in the swamp. How tall are those things? asked Alice. Slack-jeweled and Victoria had no answer but to carry on. The one you seek is coming, sister, the doppelganger said, crouching close to Victoria. The creature December is close. What would you have me do? The doppelganger held up her bound hands. I was made for this fight. Free me. You cannot face him alone. No allies, said Victoria reflexively. No partners. I see. The other her smiled. Just you, then. Victoria nodded. Just me. Then a growing rumbling caught her attention, and she steered the canoe into the cover of some low branches draped with grey-green moss. To the north, the swamp only had weeds and grasses atop it, and they could see for some distance across it. There, heading in the same direction as they were, was a large steamship. A great plume of smoke rose from its stacks as its paddle wheels turned, sending out a wash of green waves behind it. Were you expecting company? Alice asked in a whisper.
0: will clash at Kythera, and justice will prevail, I'm sure. To find out what happens, tune in next time to the Tales of Malifaux. And remember, bad things happen.